I was sleeping around, just a horny young gay Having lots of sex and lots of careless ways Then I got the word from my drag mother Come on, little miss Now we work with ending HIV Supporting and informing our community Serving up a podcast celebration Across the generations And that is why we're here <laughs> This is a sexual transmission We're stiff And plays Hi, I'm Blaze. Hi, I'm Steph. And welcome back to Sexual Transmission. And welcome this week to a very special episode commemorating Mental Health Awareness Week. Beautiful. And we do sound a little bit different today because we are actually recording this physically distanced from the safety and comfort of our own bubbles. <laughs> today we, um, we're going to discuss some issues that have come up for me on the anniversary of my um, sobriety. And we're going to talk generally about ways that we can support each other and help each other um, in regard to our mental health. And if anything comes up for you during the episode, please feel free to call or text 1737, which is um, a helpline that will connect you to a qualified person who can either help you directly or who'll be able to pass you on to someone um, who can specifically help you with the thing that, that you're looking to deal with. Thanks for that introduction, Mama. I thought I'd just bring up something a little bit relevant to our own mental health journeys, I guess, before we begin. And that is that in the time since we last released a podcast, you and I have had a bit of a shared journey in that we've publicly announced something. We have, yes. We've announced our um, our Venus. Our Venus. <laughs> our mama they and our they be. No. Maybe. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, everybody. Uh, we've both, I, I guess lockdown has given us a chance to, um, or even before lockdown, I mean, we've mm. had a lot of time since we last saw you to reflect on, I guess, our place in the world and, and how we want to be authentically existing as ourselves. And we've embraced the non-binary finery. Mm. It's wonderful. Yeah. And it's nice to be experiencing that that with you, darling. It's been paved with much ease because, um, you know, we've we've been doing it together and, and we've supported each other and we've kind of offered each other different perspectives on things that have, have helped to make that decision and make the work that we do around that so much easier. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the affirmation that we've been able to receive from each other and the uh, almost the resilience that brings from um, having a, a they in arms, shall we say, a, 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 a comrade, a come them in arms. Um, <laughs> it really bolsters the safety and comfort that comes with being able to openly own that, um, mm, which is yeah, so, so beautiful. So, yeah, we've got a really special episode planned for you today and we hope you enjoy. Enjoy. Well, here we are after a long period of absence, but so, so gorgeous to be back with all of our wonderful listeners. And of course, so gorgeous to be back with you, Mama. It's been a long time since we've recorded one of these. 
It has, yeah, yeah. It's been ages and ages. Yeah. Obviously, we've still been um, carrying on our campness behind the scenes. We absolutely have. Just because it's not been recorded doesn't mean it hasn't been happening. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) With our weekly family dinners and I guess now through COVID, we've been having our regular regular FaceTimes to make sure that the, the family keeps in touch with all the scandal, gossip and intrigue. Mm, exactly. And having little um, simultaneous dinners where we're eating in different suburbs, but still eating together. Still eating, still sharing food and sharing all of the good feelings and vibes to get through the COVID lockdown. Yeah. But we're here today for a very special reason, actually, and that is to commemorate Mental Health Awareness Week, which is a very important conversation that we as um, people living in Aotearoa should be having and a conversation that is quite dear to both of our hearts. So really excited to have that chat with you. Mm, Absolutely, yeah. It's really nice to be able to um, mark this special week and and it's interesting that that it happens to have fallen on, you know, one of the... um, Hopefully, final weeks of our most um, serious levels of lockdown during COVID. Exactly. So yeah, <laughs> it's for lots of people something that's probably um, you know it's it's quite nice to mark the importance of taking good care of our mental health and checking in on others and and just making sure that everyone is doing well at this kind of strange and sometimes isolating time. Absolutely, and I hope that all of the people who are listening to this do feel some sense of connection or respite from, I guess, the last, what is it, seven weeks now, and maybe some hope that the next couple of weeks bring a bit more in-person connection to friends and whānau. Absolutely, yeah. And by chance, today's recording has fallen on a bit of a milestone moment for me as well, which is the second year of my sobriety journey, the beginning of the third year, but um, two years now, two years ago, I um, I made the decision to become a sober person and, and start this journey, which has been probably one of the most profound and amazing things that I've actually ever done. So um, yeah, it's it's interesting and, and it's something that I didn't really... I mean, I kind of woke up and thought, oh, actually, this is kind of, this is amazing timing and how nice. And it felt like a good, poignant thing. And 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 I wasn't, I guess, expecting the emotions that um, it's kind of brought up mm-hmm. to kind of take over. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an unusual thing that, that I really wasn't expecting. And I guess different types of difficulties with mental health kind of come in that way, don't they? You can be you can be suddenly surprised or blindsided by something that you thought was just going to be a normal thing that actually really affects you in some way quite deeply. Absolutely. I would just like to acknowledge that journey for you. And I remember when you told me that that was a journey that you were going on and what that was going to look like for you. And I'm so grateful to have been able to witness that journey. And I have to say that as somebody who I hold a, a great deal of respect for and love for, that that example that you have set for me has been exponential to my own care for myself and my awareness of those, I guess, that particular journey and totally understand that with the acknowledgement of 
that journey that that comes with significant and quite nuanced emotions. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that with me, with us all, and for allowing me to witness that journey for you has been, yeah, really, really special. So Mm. thank you, Mama. No, you're welcome. I was looking back actually through my Instagram and one of the the last photos that I posted before I became sober is actually of you, Jamie and I um, in the bar at the top of the So Hotel with glasses of champagne. I remember that (laughs) night. I think we were actually celebrating my new job at the New Zealand AIDS Foundation. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'd just come back from, I'd been away in Melbourne and then I came back briefly and then went straight down to Dunedin for That's four right. months. And, yeah, and, and did a film down there around all around the bottom of the South Island for four months. So we'd been apart for quite some time as well. So We had been. It was such a gorgeous little reunion. Mm. And what a way to um, send off and start on a new a new journey as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was um, it was a very interesting um, way that it came about. I guess I'll sort of give a little bit of context to it, and that I never really was a, a person who was a kind of messy drunk or drug user, and I was it was never anything. I guess probably what's known as a high functioning drug and and alcohol abuser. <laughs> I guess is probably the best term to use. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, it was a daily practice of, you know, drinking one or two bottles of champagne every day, whether I was on my own or with someone else. And I guess it didn't really impact in an obvious way on my life, but um, the damage was kind of being done internally, I guess, and emotionally and, and all different kinds of ways. And I actually ended up getting quite sick just after that time that we'd had that celebration. And no one could work out why. And I, I ended up going as a sort of last chance of trying to work out what was wrong to see a naturopath who told me that, you know, my body was completely um, overrun by lots of little mini viruses. And I had rashes on my body. I had no energy. I was I was really like incredibly ill. And she put me on a course of different herbal medication and different things and said, you, you can't drink during this time. And so I thought, well, probably a good idea. And the reason she gave me for not being able to drink is that, and also the reason that there were so many of these little kind of little viruses going on in my body, was that when your body is trying to sort of flush and deal with alcohol, that's its first point of call and and it can't deal with anything else. So over a period of time, I just had sort of been overrun and inundated by all these nasties that were just kind of wreaking havoc on my my body infections and viruses and all types of things. And so I found within one week of taking her medicine and not drinking, the rashes went away. Within two weeks, my energy started coming back. Within a month, I was feeling amazing. And then the end of the course of things in three months, I thought, well, I've come this far. Why would I start drinking again? And it was a real wake-up call for me to to realize that the body does treat alcohol in that way. And it made me think of alcohol in a very different way that if it's such a poison that the body takes its focus on getting rid of that before anything else, including, you know, viral infections, which are quite nasty for our immune system, then it's got to be pretty bad for us, right? So Mm. I carried on and and obviously that was um, just the very beginning of this journey that, and I I call it a journey because it it really is, you know, it's... um, it's going through the emotions of, you know, not socially having a crutch when you're when you're out with people or in company with other people. 
It's processing how you deal with being sober when everyone else is not. It's also just um, not being able to quiet the voices or quiet the energy that, you know, you normally can sort of squash down by getting wasted. So, yeah, it's it's interesting having not thought that it was a problem to suddenly realising how much of a problem it was because of, you know, what's come up since. And it's really given me um, some amazing insight into myself and into who I am in the world and also to who other people are to mm. me and around me and, and also personally. So... Although it's not necessarily, a, you know, in the beginning, I didn't think it was necessarily anything to do with mental health. I think it, it absolutely is. And it's probably one of the most amazing things that I've ever been able to do for my mental health is, is to get sober. I guess the only thing that I would add to that is um, just the idea of being bold with that and, and trying to, you know, go out to a bar and meet friends and don't drink for a night you know, just do that and see what that feels like and see what that brings up for you and just be adventurous in your attitude to substances. I'm, I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to become sober because I didn't listen to people for a very long time until it was the right time for me. But I think to be aware of what you're doing is really important and be bold in your idea of if I go out tonight and I don't drink and I have a really nice time, what happens? Is this nicer for me? Do I? Mm-hmm. I didn't end up feeling shit the next day. I didn't go home with someone that I didn't like or I felt embarrassed by. I didn't like fall over on the dance floor and you know make a fool of myself or whatever. Um, and if those are things that you find you're doing often and you you go out and enjoy yourself without it, then maybe it's a good step to take. And that the other thing that I really wanted to say about sobriety is that it's. Um, it is a journey and that's why I call it a journey. And I've been sober at various points in my life for periods of time that have taught me so much. And then I've gone back to using and to drinking again. And and I think it's all part of the journey. So the journey didn't start two years ago. The journey started the first time that I got drunk from some alcohol I'd stolen from my parents' liquor cabinet and filled <laughs> the bo- rest of the bottle up with water. <laughs> <laughs> And the first time that I got drunk and felt what that felt like was the first time that I that this this journey started and it's still continuing now. So mm. I guess today is a profound day for me in the sense of all this. So it's um, something that I'm thinking very keenly about and, and definitely I think it relates a lot to, mm. to mental health and to the success of that definitely Absolutely. has for me. There's so much power in that. And there's so much, I guess, power in the, I mean, not let alone the physical health benefits, but um, in the clarity that that gives you of perception of yourself, perception of others, and perception of interpersonal relationships. Mm. That's been one of the things I've garnered from your journey as well as just the way in which um, we're able to perceive how we are amongst other people when substances are not present in our bodies. And I think it's such a huge thing that affects so much of our communities because particularly the gay community exists or is kind of socially founded upon nightclub culture because, you know, back in the 80s and 90s when homosexuality was not legal, those spaces were where our people could congregate and um, were safe to congregate. Mm. But on the flip side of that, those spaces were 
ruled by an environment of substance intake, um, whether that's alcohol, whether that's drugs, and that has continued on. And still in, you know, generations now, we are seeing young people still being brought through that culture of kind of social acceptance through binge drinking and alcohol consumption and that those spaces are where the community still gather. And I definitely think it's also a wider issue that we should be thinking about as a community. You know, where are the spaces that our communities are gathering and how do those spaces influence their mental health through avenues of drug and alcohol use and what does that mean in terms of social hierarchies, in terms of social connection and relationships with each other? Absolutely, yeah. And so many things happen when, um, you know, the, the inhibitions that are broken down when we're when we're in that sort of um, inebriated state and decisions that we can make and that we do make. I mean, I know personally that some of the decisions that, that I made um, when I was wasted led to um, my HIV infection, you know. So I certainly don't think if I was um, in this sober body that I'm in now, I would have made some of the decisions that I made at that time and mm. put myself in the way of um, what eventually led to um, becoming HIV positive. So there's so much in the depth of what happens when we we rely on altering our mind space to try and fit in, I guess, or to try and feel bolder or more confident or, you know, more um, relevant or mm-hmm. cooler or, you know, any of those things. They're all things that we do, reasons that we we decide to start using substances and alcohol. Absolutely. That's a really interesting idea that through substance use we're able to find that sense of confidence or that sense of self-acceptance that without the substance doesn't feel like it's there. And I think one of the things I'm learning as I get older and particularly in my relationship with you and that the journey that you're on is actually, um, and also my own journey, is the more that I learn about myself and the, the I guess the older I get, the more I learn about myself and the more I learn about unpacking certain things about my identity and and reflecting on uh, past, I guess, mental health challenges, is that all of that stuff that drugs and alcohol provide in terms of confidence, acceptance of self and from others and, like, level of coolness actually already exists within me. Mm. And the thing that actually brings that out is more life and it almost seems contradictory to hinder that experience or to hinder that journey by consuming excessive alcohol use and drug use. Mm. And so by not impeding that journey, there's actually an ability to feel that and experience that in its most purest form, which is deeply empowering as a burgeoning queer in 2021. (laughs) (laughs) Burgeoning indeed. Burgeoning indeed. (laughs) Strongly burgeoning. (laughs) Strongly burgeoning, blossoming and beckoning. (laughs) It's a very interesting day and and not a day that I um, thought it was going to be. So, yeah, Mm. it's it's kind of cool to just, um, just sit in this really and just kind of notice things and think about them and... That's also true of, you know, sort of general 
emotions. It's it's a really healthy way of of dealing with any kind of emotions that you have. You know, we we're so often conditioned in our learning to have particular responses to different emotions. And I think that one of the things that I've learned most as a um, and now elder femme is that just to sit with your emotions is actually a really, really important thing to do before you decide to take any of the learned responses that that we have to emotions. You know, just kind of notice what you're feeling and and how it's making you feel, whether you, you know, what, what emotion you feel, physically what you feel, what thoughts are coming in. You know, these are all really healthy ways of processing that I've learned anyway that really work well for me. And, you know, rather than getting into a space where, you know, kind of to feel sad, to then start to kind of cry and to then start to um, let things become overwhelming and and then anxiety comes into it and all other types of emotions that weren't necessarily linked to that initial emotion can suddenly be heaped on top rather than just to kind of constructively sit and think and just feel what you're feeling and and do that in a in a calm way not not squash things but but just really kind of notice and and feel and examine what you're going through i don't know i think we've we've talked about this before haven't we we absolutely have yeah about this as being a, a really healthy way of processing and i remember when i was a bit younger now and i was less of a burgeoning queer and probably more of a baby queer, Um, when you and I had first met and we were working on Pleasure Dome, this conversation is just making me think all about how I was back a few years ago and um, those kind of teachings that you used to offer me. And that is one of the most consistent teachings that we've always come back to whenever I've had any significant emotional episodes or anything, that kind of the metaphor of this kind of moving river and just letting that that wash by. And, and through vocabulary that you have offered me, words like poise, elegance, and grace always <laughs> come to mind to contextualize those things. And you're right, like it's by um, embodying those things, it's not about squashing those emotions or invalidating those emotions, but being grounded and, and sitting in those emotions and Having gone through that kind of significant mental health journey I've been on since those days, that's definitely a learning and a teaching that to this day, kind of now that I'm on the other side of my treatment, still sits with me whenever I am experiencing more heightened emotions. And Mm. I agree, it's a really beautiful way. I was going to ask about that. Is there, when you're experiencing those or processing, do you have outlet techniques do, like journaling? Is there anything that you do, you do any writing or, or is it more of a process of just letting them pass or does it change? What's like, is there a process for you? The spirit of it is in keeping with the kind of ethos, which is how does it feel right now? Mm. You know, rather than saying, oh, okay, here we go. So now I do this and I do that. So it's, you know, sometimes it's not practical for you to actually just sit quietly and just feel emotions and let them kind of wash over you and let them sort of flow. And, and, you know, you, you mentioned the metaphor of the river, you know, it's, it's nice to, if you can, to be able to sit in a place where you feel as though you're kind of washing in the river, which is the emotion and, and flowing with it and just letting it kind of wash over you and, and just being really observant and thoughtful about what you're noticing within 
your body and within your mind and, you know, are you feeling any sensations of warmth or cold or do you feel like crying? Do you feel like laughing? Do you feel like, you know, because it's not just to to do this if it's a, an emotion that's a difficult emotion. It's also great to do it when you're feeling happy and when you're feeling really excited as well, just to, to know what the gamut of all these emotions physically feel like because we can confuse them sometimes. Mm, and sometimes mm. excitement, if you're in a sort of a nervous excitement, can read as anxiety, which then your body starts to think is a bad thing. So you're kind of spoiling the offering and the possibility of excitement and joy with um, a traditionally negative emotions. So, I mean, sometimes I, I will just kind of sit quietly. Other times I'll, I'll just curl up in a ball and lay under the covers and just feel it. I do a, a thing which is called um, automatic writing where I just literally, I mean, it's something that you can Google for different techniques of it. And it's something that I, I like to do where you, you just sit, you can either get into a meditative state or, you know, if you've done it a lot, then it comes quite easily. Just have a, a clear notepad and a pen and just sit and just start writing whatever comes into your head and just write and write and write and don't stop, don't edit, don't worry about spelling, don't worry about anything. Every thought that comes into your head just write it down. And the more times you practice it, the more immediate and natural it becomes. Um, sometimes you can just do it and not look at it again. Sometimes I don't even read what I've written. And other times I'll leave it and then read it again. I mean, quite often I do this in the middle of the night if I can't sleep. I'll get up and I'll just start to do this automatic writing and then it'll relax me, it'll process or get out a whole bunch of stuff that's in my head. I'll go back to sleep and the next morning I'll I'll read what I've written and just kind of see what was there. And I mean, I, I think it's a mixture of like subconscious, it's a mixture of what's going on inside your head. It can also be a mixture of some sort of like, I feel sometimes like a spiritual sort of spirit guide mm. message coming through as well, like it's a combination of things. But it's a really great way of processing because you're not getting into that headspace where you can get into a real spin and you can, mm. you know, sometimes when you're lying in bed and you can't sleep and you just go round and round and round on those same thoughts. I know, you know, you're exactly the same as me in the sense that we have this insomnia which is irrational <laughs> and has nothing to do with tiredness or not. Yeah, exactly. It's a really nice way just to get out of that little brain space of just being. Totally. I remember three years ago or something now when I was, back when I was living in Christchurch and I was touring with that show, when the insomnia started developing and you and I would have extensive phone calls and the automatic writing was something that you offered me as a means of um, dealing with that incessant recurring voice of just everything. And it was one of the first times where I saw or felt spirituality in motion as well in terms of those, those callings and those voices and actually being able to discern or start being able to discern what thoughts were serving me and what thoughts weren't serving me in terms of that um, reflection piece you know, if you go back and read them. Um, mm. And I, I, since then, have had kind of an off-and-on relationship with it. So, you know, when the insomnia is really bad, that's when I'll go to the automatic writing. And when it's, when it's more manageable, it feels less about doing that and just doing the sitting in the river and letting it mm. flow by. Yet another gift that I have to thank you for. Yeah. And I hope that anybody listening is automatic writing, taking down some notes while they're listening to 
And like, like I said, there's there's lots of different techniques and it is something that you can just Google, you know, there's lots of mm. interesting little little things that people have written about a way that will, you know, you'll find a way that will work for you and that feels natural for you. But it, it is really, really helpful. And, you know, again, these are things that I've given to you that are things that have been passed to me from other people. And, you know, I think it's just, it's part of what we do as as humans is we find things that serve us well and and if we think that it's helpful to someone else then we we pass them on as gifts you know because mm. it can be just so difficult to try and navigate and negotiate what's going on in your life and and as you get older you you see people having exactly the same experience or trouble or difficulty as what you had when you were a young person and the automatic response is to to want to pass on some of the things at work, you know. So it's wonderful to be able to share that with you and it's nice to be able to share it with our listeners. But, I mean, it's also great just to get on the phone with a, with a friend. It's something that I've been doing during lockdown is just connecting with people because what else do we have to do? You know, we can sit and chat for 15 minutes or two hours and, and just share a little bit of um, the excitement or the burden or the joy or whatever it is that we're experiencing and just listen or just talk. It's one of the great things that we can do and it's mm-hmm. a bit of a, a thing that is offered to us in lockdown and it can hopefully solve part of the problems that we have in lockdown which are feeling alone. A lot of people are feeling alone and feeling a little bit disenfranchised, especially people who are used to spending a lot of time around other people. So, mm. you know, it's it's important. Absolutely. And I think I actually think that's the theme or one of the themes for this year's Mental oh, yeah. Health Awareness Week is actually having conversational connecting. Mm. And yeah, definitely is very timely that this lockdown has allowed us to have those moments and our phone calls and FaceTimes have been the social lifeline of (laughs) this lockdown for me, definitely. And I always, always feel, regardless of what we've shared or how the call has been, I always feel uplifted at Mm. the end of them. And I feel there's a sense of grounding and a sense of community and uh, almost like a purpose even if we're just sharing the highlights of what we've recently watched on Netflix (laughs) or the latest Drag Race episodes. It's such a simple thing that anybody can do, particularly now. And what a gorgeous habit to get into coming out of lockdown to keep connections going. I've also noticed a um, a lot of connections coming back to the surface that had previously not had as much attention paid to them due to, you know, the in inverted quotation marks, busyness of life, etc., and having the time to re-establish those connections and reinvest into those relationships has been really valuable and um, definitely something that I'm interested to see how that can carry on after this lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, There's all kinds of little micro-gifts that we get in this lockdown. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember it from the first one that we had last year and and I did try and keep a lot of those those things alive, you know, keeping the idea of having a really cosy nest of a home that you feel safe in. You know, that's something that often will move into a flat or will move into an apartment or a house. And, you know, you do it on the weekend and you unpack the 
weeks after and you never really get round to unpacking this. You never get really round to finding that cosy, sunny nook where you can read a book when the sun comes around in the afternoon. And, you know, spending all of our time in our houses actually gives you the, it's like, oh, wow, at this time of the day, I've got a lovely sunny spot over there where I can just mm. take a book and curl up. And and that can just become a nice routine that on the weekend, you know, you know where to go at that time of day. These are little things that, that we can use to nourish ourselves and to make sure that we feel protected and we feel enriched and we feel safe. And coming back to mental health problems, often, you know, what I've just described as moving into a place and not really making it your own or not really finding, you know, your safe place can contribute to you feeling a bit lost in the world or not feeling like you've got a place that you can feel safe or you can know that you're safe and know that you can process. So, you know, this is a time now where we can actually create that for ourselves and make the routine of using it and have it there for us whenever we need it. Absolutely. Uh, That actually has sparked a memory of one of the parts of my mental health journey that I was going through a few years ago, very much on that vein. You know, I was house-sitting a lot. Mm -hmm. I was living in hotels a lot when I was touring. And I think for about a year and a half, I lived out of a suitcase. And I think about when I was first diagnosed with severe anxiety, panic disorder and depression, where I was living and what, what environment kept me safe in that time. And I was actually living at your house mm. when that all happened. And that was for the months that I was living there in the early days of my diagnoses, like a safe haven for me. And then moving out of that environment, it was like, oh my God, what's happened? <laughs> what's happened? Where am I? What do I do? Every time I come back to your house, it's always the sense of safety and protection. And obviously I attribute that to the relationship that you and I have and with that space, but also, you know, what was contextually happening in my life at the time Mm. um, and that space being that kind of cocoon almost. And amazing, just just really briefly on that, that when you felt safe to actually explore this, you know, you'd obviously been squashing a lot of this down Mm, very, mm. very solidly because you weren't in a safe space where you felt that you could actually unpack and process. And so as soon as you were in a safe place, that triggered the processing time and the beginning of healing with that, which is amazing. That's a really cool thought, right? Yeah, totally, totally. And, and And what barriers a safe space or a groundedness in a space can offer you in terms of being able to start or being able to continue or we carry so many subconscious barriers and and you don't actually, I mean, I guess even just explicitly talking about that now is kind of a new realisation for me, right? It's like that that actually was a barrier, <laughs> that not having a safe space was a barrier to accessing care or, or the things that I needed mm-hmm. and that once that was there, that that journey was able to occur. Yeah, that's really beautiful. It's amazing. Yeah, I'd never thought of that either. And, you know, but it makes so much sense. It's, Mm. you know, it's the same thing as animals will always find a safe place before they kind of deliver their their young. They Mm. have to be in some, some place where they know that the babies will be safe. And it's the same kind of thing that you were sort of automatically doing is you were waiting for 
finding a place where you felt cocooned and you felt safe and you felt mm. like you could start to process things because that was the trigger point. It was pretty much like a week or two after you moved in there that that all happened, wasn't it? I think a week. I think, yeah, a, yeah it literally was. Bizarre, really mm. bizarre having that little realisation now. <laughs> on that as well, on that topic, it's just got me thinking about safe spaces and things and what that offers people. And I just, I also think I just want to flag in this conversation that those kind of spaces aren't always readily available for people as well. You know, people live, we live in a society that exists on systemic inequalities. And, and because of that, you know, a lot of uh, Pacifica and Māori whānau don't have the same ability to access those spaces, whether that's um, through socioeconomic means, whether that's through health means, whether that's through education and income ne- means. I just would like to acknowledge that there is also great privilege in being able to have access to those spaces. And mm. I question what as a society, we can do to help reduce those particular inequities where those people are actually enabled to have those spaces and have those spaces provided for them. Mm. Because it strikes me as something that it's almost like a human right that people should have access to in order to thrive in their lives. Mm. So what, you know, what can government do to ensure that this can occur? What can political parties lobby for to ensure that people have safe houses? How can government agencies be reformed to allow people, particularly young Māori, particularly young Pacifica people, can be provided these safe spaces within the context of their culture as well? Because obviously Pākehā culture is a lot different to te Māori and Māoridom. And what does that entail? What does um, connection to the land entail? What does connection to Fano entail in terms of creating those safe spaces? Mm. Uh, it's a very broad um, question, but I would just like to offer that to our listeners. Mm, Absolutely, yeah. The idea of finding that safety um, doesn't need to come from, you know, having a safe apartment to go and be in, Mm, you know. mm. You can create that space you know, even if you if you share a bedroom, I remember when I was young and shared a bedroom with my brother and I was going through all sorts of similar types of things. I f- didn't feel like the house was my own. I didn't feel like I lived in a place that was my safe place. But I remember when I get into bed, a bunk bed, <laughs> so still connected to the other person, get into the bed, put the covers over my head and just be there and try and find that safety in that small space, it doesn't have to be a place where you can languish and feel, mm. you know, powerful. It can be as simple as just that. It can also be in a person like, I, you know, I, I remember when I'd spend time with my grandmother and my great-grandmother, I felt safe there. And that was a place where I could really feel that safety and feel the freedom to be able to be myself. For everyone, it's different. And, mm. you know, maybe if you live somewhere where there's a a park or a stream or a river or somewhere that you can just go and be on your own. You know, it's it's about trying to find that that place where you feel at one and safe in yourself and safe in your surroundings to be able to just find that way of, of doing what we've been talking about. And 
I guess it's, you know, it's it's different for everyone. Some people, you know, we've not talked about people who are in dangerous relationships, mm, you know, and mm. that's that's another very unsafe place where you can't necessarily have this experience. Yeah. So it's about really being quite strong and and really seeking out that place that you know is your safety, you know, doing it for yourself, being mm, mm. knowing that it's going to make a difference and being really powerful within yourself to find that space because it will make a big difference, you know, just to have that that place where you can just sit with your emotions and you can just really start to focus on yourself is such an important thing that, that you can do wherever you are. Absolutely. Just thinking again about what we were saying um, in terms of you really starting your um, your mental health healing journey um, when you felt safe in, in our place. I mean, what do you think was happening before that, that before you, you felt you could start processing, you know, personally, what, what did you feel? Oh, that's such a good question. I definitely think that feeling of almost like an isolation, all these things had started building up and building up and building up, whether that was because I was touring a lot and I wasn't, I didn't have a space that was safe or whether that was I had repressed trauma to a point that was no longer that my mind or my body could physically (laughs) continue to keep ignoring. But I think it's really important to note that even if you aren't ready to address these things um, or before you get to that point of feeling safe to address those things, that it's okay to just survive and to ensure that you are getting or doing what you need to do in order to get through each day Mm -hmm. and that that process may go on for X amount of time before you're ready. And I guess to that, I would say you're only ready when you're ready. Um, There isn't like a checklist of things that kind of constitute being ready to work through mental health challenges and that you are the only person who can decide when you're ready. And just circumstantially for me, I was fortunate enough that that occurred when I was in a safe environment. And I would attribute that to subconsciously feeling in a place to deal with that. Albeit, you know, I was surrounded by people who were, at the time, who were urging me to access services and things to tackle that. And quite early in that conversation with those people, I I was refusing. I just, I couldn't. I wasn't ready. I was not ready. And that was while I was touring and that's while the you know, all of the insomnia was developing and all of that stuff. And yeah, I had these people on the sidelines who have been extraordinarily loyal friends and very caring friends, but I just was not ready at that point to be addressing these things. And it just so happened that when I was in a safe environment that those urging voices were still there, but I, you know, there was something that cracked through and it was probably the safe space that I was in, that environment that allowed me to then reach out, which I think is going back to your point of that space be not having to be a physical environment. It can be a state of being that that environment could be a river, a park, a field, a, a place in nature, a small space, you know, if it's under a blanket um, or even just in your mind's eye, it can be a space of solace. And, and I would say that that space existed already in my head and was what was the thing that I was 
I guess, utilising to survive on the day-to-day-to-day-to-day-to-day. But that space was expanded once there was some sort of, like, physical attachment to that. Mm. Yeah, but I think just to re-emphasise that it's okay to just be surviving and to get through each day and to continue forward and, and you'll be ready when you're ready. Absolutely, yeah. That's a really important thing to think about because, you know, I, I spent 48 years um, not being ready <laughs> to start this journey <laughs> that I'm now yeah. on. So, you know, it's um, it doesn't mean that you've not been learning and you've not been processing and you've not been doing good stuff in your preparation for for where you ultimately end up because everything we do is preparation for the next thing that's going to happen. Coming back to what you were saying about friends um, being there for you, like people can also be safe spaces for you, you know, someone that you can just pick up the phone and talk to or someone you can go for a walk with or I quite like having very, very profound conversations with people when I'm driving because you're not sitting there looking at someone. Yeah, You can be focusing on something else, but still be very engaged with them, but not have feel like you've got this kind of face-to-face pressure of having to kind of open up. You know, you can have sometimes quite intimate conversations when you're not even looking at a person because you're driving a car. (laughs) Sometimes that's easier. Some of our most most profound conversations have been driving back from your lockup out in Kumiu. Totally. So some of our like deepest, most intimate things have been shared just on a drive down the southwestern motorway. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. There's so many ways that you can do it, and mm. these are things from our perspective that we're sharing. But yeah. everyone has their own journey and their own version of it, and and I guess you know sharing what we're sharing is just kind of offering the idea that be thoughtful about where you are at. Mm. Do you need to mm. do something? Do you need to just stay safe and batten down the hatches and keep going and and wait for the right time? Do you need to do something profound like phone a helpline, start mm. seeing a counsellor, get someone that you trust, share something with them that you know mm. is going to somehow unburden you? I think that's what these kinds of commemorations of a of a thing weeks or days are about is just bringing your focus into a certain subject and this is a really important subject that we so often just kind of brush away and and don't give the importance that without stability and and good strength of who we are how can we actually function how can we be productive how can we be creative how can mm. we be loving how can we be safe exactly On that, that's got me thinking about allyship and what allyship in a mental health sense looks like too. I hands down would say you've you've been one of the most beautiful allies to me on my journey and and the care and love that you have shown me and supported me through countless things over the last years. And I've been reflecting on this quite recently about what kind of, I guess, effective allyship looks like in the mental health space. And like a few things come to mind and and one of those I think is really active listening and centering that experience of that person in what they're communicating to you. And what that does is is it almost reflects their experience back at them so that they are, I don't want to say the word empowered, but they are enabled to almost find the access that safe space. It's almost like reflecting someone's own strength back at them so that they're not 
feeling as though they're being like prescribed an answer or prescribed a, a thing, but they're being presented with a range of support systems that they can then choose to access or not access based on their need. And that thing of, if that's just survival, then that's just survival in that instance. And if that's what they need and they need to deal with, you know, if it's paying rent or eating or, you know, just those really simple things, they can mean the hugest world of difference. You know, even I think back to countless family dinners that you and I have had and and what those have meant to me, not just in, in having some really gorgeous quality time together, but actually this is whether or not I'm I'm actually eating nutritious food, you know, <laughs> and, and what that means for somebody's mental health. And, you know, you taking the time to teach me how to cook nutritious food, you know, the, those things have meant exponential, boundless support to me on my mental health journey. And, and instead of, um, you know, somebody sitting down and saying, you need to do this or you need to do that or, or I think this or like, you know, this like placement of judgment upon somebody's experience or an opinion about somebody's experience rather than just sitting, listening and then providing meaningful action. That's my five cents on, on allyship <laughs> and mental health. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And it's I, I think the really amazing thing about our relationship is that we've found when I, I met you, I met, I would say, forty other people who were involved in that show all at yeah. the same time. <laughs> yeah. But you and I were drawn to each other and mm. we realized that we are the same type of person, the mm. same person really. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, yeah. a lot of what you experience and that you go through, I have already been through. And, mm, you know, I'm mm. I'm twice as old as you are. So, you know, I've kind of come out the other side of so many things that you're just entering into. Mm. And the thing that's really meant the success that you're talking about in our relationship is that we do we do have that that commonality, which means that, you know, we do both enjoy eating and gossiping and dressing up and, you know, all of the things that we do. And and I think, you know, I would urge any older people who, who wanted to mentor younger people, find someone who has a, like, you've got a commonality and, mm. and, and how do you, it's kind of weird to say to someone, oh, hi, do you want to be my friend? You know, so it's <laughs> like... <laughs> You, you like playing computer games and so do I. Do you want to come over and play computer games? Mm. And that's a starting mm. place for then, you know, kind of having something that is quite a beautiful thing that you share together and then you can build on that and, and just create a foundation for something that can then be a really profound relationship for both of you. Absolutely. Because as profound... Um, the allyship and the support that you that you've talked about that I give you the having that reflected back is very um, profound and beautiful for me as well. Oh, that's so gorgeous! It's very special. Yeah, it really, really is. That's so beautifully offered. I think in terms of how to find those those connections and 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 the importance, almost the importance of positive modelling, particularly, I think, for queer people. It's one thing talking about Mental Health Awareness Week, but contextualising that within a queer setting and and a queer context Mm. is so much more nuanced than obviously um, more, I guess, 
cisgender heterosexual society. Mm. Queer people don't have models of of queer love, um, of what it looks like to thrive as a queer person. You know, mm. we've got four decades of media, of popular media telling us that we don't deserve to live a happy life, that, you know, we'll die young, you know, all of these rhetorics. Mm. And, you know, that's still ingrained in some in some laws, you know, adoption law and, and things mm. like that is, it still exists. And to have a relationship with somebody who who models that behaviour, who can model that love or what a, a person looks like as a thriving human being, a thriving adult is extraordinarily powerful in terms of mental health and in terms of aspiration. That for me was a key part of surviving, right? And that, and that element of surviving was aspiration. What will my life look like? What mm. can my life look like? What can I attain in my life? And, you know, I say it all the time, but you and Jamie's relationship is something that I look to quite a lot in terms of where I posit myself in my own, I guess, understanding of romance and and, and what that could look like for me mm. when society has previously told me that that was not possible or even examples and, and the way in which the community exists currently tell me that that is potentially not possible. But what positive role modelling offers me and what reaffirms to me is that it is possible. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, there's a real power in positive modelling for queer people specifically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that, that isn't automatically out there in the world for us. So, no. So yeah, it's definitely something that, you know, I had a very, very similar kind of relationship with um, with a couple when I was younger. But as you were talking about that, I was remembering the very first gay person that I properly met, who was a gay man who'd been living in New York, who came back to live in the small town that I grew up in. I found out afterwards, he'd found out he was HIV positive, he couldn't afford the medical bills in America. So he'd essentially come back to New Zealand, left his life behind, all of his friends, everything that he'd kind of worked his whole adult life to build up and create. He worked in the theatre, he was a, a set designer and he lived in this amazing house that had, he'd shipped some things over, these incredible set pieces and it was, you know, he made his little slice of the world down here beautiful. But he'd essentially come home to die. This is in 1987, and, mm. you know, he knew that he was sick and that he was going to get sicker and he couldn't afford to stay living in America. So he came back and and that was my first experience of seeing a gay person was, I, he didn't tell me he was positive. I didn't know about it until after he'd, he'd passed away. But I was reading in him a person who felt a sense of failure, who was coming to a place that he didn't want to be, but he had no choice and he was making mm. the best of it. But it wasn't a thriving gay person that I thought, wow, I want to be you when I grow up. There were parts of me that was like, oh my gosh, there's this thing called Interview Magazine and I'm just going <laughs> to get a, a subscription to this shit because this is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I learned so much from him. But what I, what I learned interpersonally from him was a sense of, this is the second best and this isn't mm. what I want, but this is what I'm settling for because I have no other choice. And so, you know, it, it is important for us to kind of live in our 
best selves and and be as aspirational and inspirational to other people as we can be because it does work, you know, it does rub off on you. And there's a part of me that still thinks about that man and, and makes me think, gosh, I hope that that is never my destiny. You know, I hope that mm. I'm never mm. I'm never in that place because I've seen it firsthand and I know how much of a, a sad space it is for someone who's done so much and been so much to, mm. to kind of end up. So it's really important for us to support each other mm. as queer people, as people, you know. <laughs> Just... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Don't yeah. don't forget about humanity and and what we can offer each other and how we can be good allies for everyone for each other. I'm in a very very funny headspace today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for being so open and sharing those reflections. I think you know again it's so aspirational and so inspirational um, in terms of how people shape who they are. And I think the same thing goes for a mental health journey too, right? It's, mm. It doesn't start the day that you're diagnosed. It doesn't start the three months that you're experiencing symptoms before you're diagnosed. It starts the day you're born, really. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not a linear trajectory either. It doesn't stop. It doesn't ever stop. You know, I like to think of it as like a globe that gets charted, a journey that gets charted and mapped. And each step you go on each day is a new part or a new undiscovered place on that map that is kind of infinite and it's always work. You know, it will never, it's never con constant. It's never consistent. It's, it changes and mm, shapes mm. as we grow as humans too. And I think that that is absolutely reflected in, in your journey that you've shared. Mm, and, and you as well. Like it's so amazing and I'm so proud of you for taking these steps that you've, that you've taken at such a young age. You know, you, you really have, um, have put yourself first and, and you've come out the other side in a really, really incredible blossoming way. And, and I say blossoming because it's, it's just the very beginning. So, Thank you, Mama. Sorry, that, <laughs> that moved me to tears. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, I love you. I love, love you. you so much. So on that note. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> oh, we're just going to reach for a box of tissues and <laughs> say happy mental health awareness week. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I would just say take care of yourselves, everybody. Mental health is different for everybody and everybody is on their different places in their journeys and, and no journey is ever identical to another. And just be aware of that when you're commemorating this week too, that, you know, some people have had to learn things the hard way and um, being mindful of those experiences is, is important. Mm. But, yeah, thanks, everybody, for, for listening and um yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And be be kind. Be kind to yourselves mm. and others. And yeah. And celebrate life because, you know, no matter how hard it is, we are very lucky. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed the show. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about next. Tell us on our Instagram, which is ending HIV. NZ. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and share with all your friends. 
and check out the show notes for all the juicy links and resources. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Bye. If this episode or anything contained in this episode that we've discussed has raised anything for you or brought up anything, feel free to text 1737. This is a service that is designed to connect you to the support that is catered for your needs. If you're Māori or Pacifica, they will also connect you to um, services that are culturally appropriate for you as well. Free text 1737 to explain your needs and they will connect you to the services that best suit your requirements.